Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Today, we're going to talk about the polling heading into midterms and what it means for Democrats. I interview the hosts of the QAnon Anonymous podcast all about what QAnon is and what it means that Republicans are embracing the conspiracy more and more. And I'm joined by Christina Sinsoon Ramirez, the president of NextGen, the nation's largest youth vote mobilization organization, about whether young people are coming back to Democrats as more legislation is being passed and what the best way to boost turnout would be. I'm Brian Tyler Cohen, and you're listening to No Lie. Okay, so we all know how midterms work for the party in power. Republicans lost 31 seats in 2006 during George W. Bush's presidency. Democrats got crushed in 2010, losing 12 seats in the Senate and 64 in the House in 2010. And Republicans lost 41 seats in the House in the blue wave of 2018. So for this year, given the fact that Democrats hold majorities in both chambers of Congress and the White House, plus the fact that Biden's approval rating is still underwater at about 40, 41 percent, it really shouldn't be close. But I want to go over some of the newest polls that we have uh, that have come out lately. In Pennsylvania, Fetterman is polling ahead of Oz by 18 points, 18. In Arizona, Mark Kelly's polling eight points ahead of Blake Masters. In Georgia, Warnock's polling about a point ahead of Herschel Walker. In Ohio, Tim Ryan's about a point ahead of J.D. Vance. North Carolina, Sherry Beasley is about tied with Ted Budd. In Nevada, Cortez Masto is about a point ahead of Adam Laxalt. In Wisconsin, Mandela Barnes is polling four points ahead of Ron Johnson. Of course, you know, things can change with every poll, but the point is that in an environment where history says the Democrats should be losing, they're very much in these races. And look, with all of that said, don't trust the polls. <laughs> like, I think that if there's anything that we've learned the last few years, it's that polling kind of sucks. But at least we can take a bigger story from this, which is that, you know, on the right, when you have candidates like Herschel Walker, who makes Donald Trump sound like an oratory genius, and Dr. Oz, whose idea of being an everyman is walking into a grocery store whose name he doesn't know, freehanding a bunch of vegetables and calling it crudite. Uh, And Blake Masters, who's been embraced by white nationalists and who himself has embraced the white replacement theory. When you have candidates like that, who all appealed to the farthest fringes of the GOP in order to win their primaries, they're all making it really difficult to win their general election races, you know, being candidates like that. Add in the fact that the entirety of the Republican Party has been trying to one up each other in terms of how restrictive their abortion bans can be and refusing to make exceptions in cases of rape or incest or the life of the mother. And they've turned what history says should be an easy win into a really, really competitive election. Um, And just as importantly, you know, Democrats are showing up in a big way. And look, I was on this podcast this past winter, basically mourning the fact that we squandered away our majority with, you know, a Rhodes bill. Uh, But now, eight months later, we've passed the Inflation Reduction Act. That's the biggest climate bill in history uh, that allows the government to negotiate lower drug prices, shores up the ACA, caps costs for Medicare recipients. We passed the PACT Act and CHIPS. We passed uh, the Infrastructure Package and the American Rescue Plan. We passed the first gun safety legislation in decades. We recovered every single job lost during the pandemic and brought the unemployment rate down to a 50-year low. Gas prices and inflation are still high, but they're both on their way down. I mean, you'd be kidding yourself if you didn't acknowledge that this has been a monumentally productive two years. 
like a historically productive two years, especially considering we were working with razor-thin margins. Kamala Harris has cast 26 tie-breaking votes. That's the third most in history. The Senate is also working on uh, reforms to the Electoral Count Act. So this will be a productive Congress. And I think for people to see that a body that notoriously does nothing can actually get stuff done when you elect the right people, that makes a big difference. So look, uh, as far as November goes, here's what's at stake. It's pretty simple. If we elect a couple more Democrats, which we can already do in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin alone, and we hold our seats that are vulnerable, and we hold the House, we can eliminate the filibuster and codify Roe. We can make gerrymandering illegal and finally, you know, eliminate the massive margin that we have to overcome to continue holding the House every cycle. We can take more aggressive action against fossil fuels in addition to the carrots that we have now for clean energy. But if Republicans take control, we're going to see legislation banning abortion at the federal level. We're going to see a pullback in climate spending. No more judges will be confirmed. And of course, we'll be mired in investigations into, you know, Hunter Biden and whatever other bullshit that Republicans can cook up to appeal to whatever Fox News comment section they're performing for. So, you know, I I know I sound like a broken record, but find people in your circle and make sure they're registered and have a plan to vote. Because judging by what we're seeing right now, we are still very much in this race. So let's keep doing the work and bring it home. Next up is my interview with the host of the QAnon Anonymous podcast. Okay, now we've got Jake Rokitansky, Julian Field, and Travis View, the hosts of the QAnon Anonymous podcast. Thank you guys for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us. So, so first off, you know, I feel like, I feel every day like I'm down some horrific rabbit hole, but I think that the rabbit hole that you guys are in is just way deeper. So first, let, let's get this part out of the way, and that is what QAnon is, because when we hear about QAnon, you know, we meaning regular people like the layman out here it, it's that there's this you know satanic cabal of democrats operating a global child sex trafficking ring all conspiring against donald trump how much more than that is it you know yeah i often describe QAnon as both a um a conspiracy theory and a conspiracy online conspiracy theory movement that's sort of like uh, that's also a meta narrative that combines just every conspiracy theory trope that you ever heard of like lizard people and flat earth and uh, the idea that donald trump is secretly taking down this evil cabal of people who uh traffic children do other horrific things and drink their blood so originally QAnon appeared on the the 4chan image board and actually the concept of anon just comes from a po- any poster that would post on these anonymous platforms would would have anonymous as their name and so a variety of different people were essentially role playing as people with insider information and qanon was just one of them he went by q or q clearance patriot didn't even use the term q at the beginning or didn't sign his his posts. And very quickly, uh, I think people, a combination of people on those boards who were maybe ironically boosting this and people who were really starting to believe it started to spread uh, the idea that this person was actually a highly placed military source inside the Trump administration. And he was giving secret information about what Trump was actually going to do behind the scenes to take care of what they perceived as, yes, a cabal of uh, pedophiles, um, uh, specifically child traffickers and a a kind of satanic uh, group of politicians that had, you know, for, you know, maybe hundreds of years uh, tried to control the population. So it was kind of 
Alex Jones if he were pretending to be inside, you know, the Trump administration. And very quickly, promises started coming out about this event called the Storm, which would be the rounding up of all of these, you know, bad people and their punishment. So the idea is he's sending them to Guantanamo. Maybe there's going to be military tribunals, possibly even executions. And all of this was occurring at a time where Trump was not necessarily coming through on some of the promises, certainly not some of the more extreme promises that he had made during, you know, um, his campaign and um, the first year of his uh, of his presidency. And so this really started to uh, kind of create a brush fire of beliefs. So very quickly, this was taken up by YouTubers who wanted to uh, red pill the normies as they see it, you know, kind of awaken them to this uh, great awakening that they they perceived. And this was the kind of introduction to a generation that maybe wasn't tech savvy enough to be on uh, the Chan image board. So 4chan and then later 8chan. Um, So this led to the spread of the belief system among people who maybe weren't as tech savvy, who maybe wouldn't be able to log in on 4chan or 8chan, but they were capable of watching YouTube videos. They were on Facebook. They were on these bigger social media platforms. And there was these kind of intermediaries, or as they called themselves, bakers, who would take these cryptic posts by Q and would repost them through uh, um, aggregators that were accessible, you know, on easy to find websites and would talk about them and decode them on YouTube. They would explain what the work, uh, what was happening on the on the chans, which was the work of essentially decrypting these very strange uh, drops, as they started to be called. And so... Uh, very quickly, a group of influencers kind of stepped in and started to spread this among the normies. The normies started spreading these memes on their own social media platforms, and it became a, a, a whole movement, you know, within the kind of MAGA um, fervor of of Donald Trump's first year. And conveniently, of course, it explained uh, that a lot of these bloodthirsty wishes that these people have about their enemies and what's going to happen and the justice that's coming. You know, it promised those things were actually happening behind the scenes, which is, I think, uh, you know, a kind of alluring idea for people who've been waiting for politicians to do what they say they're going to do. Now, in this case, of course, you know, it was essentially executions, rounding up your enemies and revealing, declassifying uh, information about a variety of different conspiracy theories. So anything from aliens to JFK's assassination. Okay, so. I have I have a hundred questions, but I want to start with this, and this is this is what's given me the most trouble. You know, if this thing is all predicated on Q, if this is all predicated on this idea that um, they're fighting back against you know a cabal of uh, of like child sex traffickers, how do they reconcile the fact that Donald Trump has history with someone like Jeffrey Epstein, or that you have a guy like Matt Gates who's under investigation by the FBI for child sex trafficking? Like so much of what this entire movement is based upon, the people who these um, QAnon adherents champion are the ones mixed up in exactly the stuff that they purport to be fighting against. Yes, I think that that is kind of the point of the movement is to create a kind of cognitive dissonance where you're able to selectively target the people that you think are in charge of it. Having said that, there is a kind of both sides element to this in that they, you know, much like Alex Jones, they hated George Bush and they actually worshipped JFK and JFK Jr., who they were later grew a part part of them later grew convinced was actually coming back and was going to run with Trump in 2024. So it's a it's a complex movement, but it's definitely one that 
uh, as far as modern politicians and as certainly as far as the uh, 2016 election and onwards, very much targeted Democrats and anyone on the right that they thought were enabling this, uh, you know, kind of agenda that they were putting in this mind control agenda. Um, and there's also within the QAnon ideology, there's kind of a closed loop way of thinking that that Q encourages uh, based based on certain drops, um, you know, not not to trust the mainstream media, um, you know, that that when uh, somebody attacks somebody for something, it means that uh, that they're actually projecting and they're accusing, you know, your heroes uh, of the very thing that they are doing behind the shadows. So, you know, even though information comes out, you know, of, of Trump's relationship with Epstein, you know, there is built there is there is built in mechanisms within the QAnon beliefs uh, that people can say, oh, well, well, but what Trump was doing was actually hunting him you know Trump was setting him up to take him down he was pretending to be friends uh, with Jeffrey Epstein so he could get all of the dirt on uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton it's all just like built in like heads we win tails you lose there's always a convenient yes. way to explain away everything there, in fact there's the, the perfect thought terminating cliche that became kind of part of their catalog of them was think mirror as in what you see is the exact opposite of what is actually happening. Right. So they can, so, so they can yeah. be accused of everything from here until the end of the earth. And it'll never actually it'll never actually stick to them because, you know, it's it's not me. It's you like Matt Gates was supposed to be a, a deep state operation to take him out. It's not that he's actually one of the people that that they would uh, normally within their belief system put on the list of people they hate. Right. Right. How convenient. Um, I, I guess I guess the question here is like. Why why did you guys start this podcast? You know, you've done around 400 episodes now. You've been featured everywhere. I'm pretty sure you're the the foremost experts on on QAnon. Why subject yourselves to something like this? I think all of us came at it from a different perspective. I mean, I was certainly interested in the post-truth era that we were shifting into and the kind of spectacle of American politics. Jake uh, had a, a history with conspiracy theories that, that he enjoyed, and he watched them slowly get polluted by anti-Semitism, uh, satanic panic. And obviously there were elements of that maybe along the way, but there used to be, you know, a form of relatively harmless conspiracism uh, that existed, you know, through things like Art Bell's uh, Coast to yeah. Coast and, uh, you know, uh, Above Top Secret, websites like that. Yeah, what happened to me was I was you know, uh, 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 our conspiracy uh, lurker. You know, I loved reading about aliens and ghosts and right. Loch Ness Monster and that sort of stuff. And what I noticed was that slowly, you know, around um, the end of 2017, uh, that the posts in our conspiracy were f more and more frequently about this, this poster named Q. And, um, to, to be perfectly honest, I was kind of into it, you know, as as somebody that I would I would, you know, categorize myself as as, you know, pretty progressive person. And so the idea that there was um, corruption within the, uh, you know, the federal uh, law enforcement level, you know, I, I was I was, you know, open to that idea. And what happened was um, when uh, the uh, the QAnon board on Reddit got banned. Um, I, I followed them over to another platform called Vote. And Vote is basically like, you know, a fake Reddit. It's it's very similar, you, you know, very similar user flow, but it's all anonymous. And so I went over to see, OK, well, well, now that these these people aren't attached to an email address or they're not attached to a username, what, what are they really saying? And I would say nine, nine out of 10 posts uh, were about Jews. 
and you know they they would say the real truth about Jews or it's time we can finally talk about the Jews and as a Jewish person myself I I I, I had it was like the end of an M Night Shyamalan movie I all of a sudden everything <laughs> kind of you know whirled into perspective and I went oh my god you know what these guys are doing are just perpetuating the same old same old conspiracy theories that the new world order and the Jews you know the evil Jews run the world and it's just packaged in this very uh, modern you know for the internet age uh, right. sort of medium yeah you know i really came from a, i had a previous interest in uh young earth creationism and intelligent design and these sorts of nonsense that a lot of um you know basically like right-wing people tried to push into public schools unsuccessfully thankfully i was also very online as a consequence of my day job i worked in digital marketing um, and uh, I started, I didn't really think much of QAnon because it was just one another weird sort of Chan thing until I noticed that it was start, it started to be promoted by Charlie Kirk, who was, you know, a pretty major conservative figure. I noticed that Charlie Kirk started boosting these bogus uh, stats that came straight from QAnon. And that made me realize that it wasn't a weird Chan thing that's going to stay in the bowels of the Internet. It's something that's going to affect, you know really the highest realms of conservative media. While you've been doing this, has any part of this been scary or dangerous for you? Because, you know, you've basically been exposing the truth about a, a subset of the population that already has a proclivity to act in a way that's that's not necessarily rational, right? And, and personally, I know the steps that I've had to take to keep myself safe in this digital world. Like, has that been an issue for you? Have you dealt with threats or, or violence or anything like that? I think one of the aspects that we very quickly noticed was that these are mostly keyboard warriors. You know, if you study the alt-right or, uh, you know, militia movements or neo-Nazi movements, the risk of actual violence and organized violence is much, much higher. With, you know, these influencers, the Q people, very often it was just... Um, they love to make up words about us, like they would call uh, groups of us with other journalists the Q-Man Centipede, or they made up a nickname for Travis, Tap Water Travis. So a lot of it for them is about posting and aesthetics, and even showing up to these uh, events, which we went to many, many times now, you know, I think the worst you're going to get is them saying, well, that wasn't very nice what you said about us on that episode or actually we, we wouldn't, you know, please, please don't attend or something like that. But the majority of QAnon people uh, or followers of QAnon have an actual uh, interestingly a non-pessimistic and an optimistic, I'd say, outlook on life, you know, because they believe that actual justice is coming. So they don't have the frustrations of someone who, uh, you know, perceives the system as broken and maybe not serving them. They think, oh, no, all this stuff is great. And also, you know. Maybe they've lost a lot of family members or friends because they were talking about this stuff too much. And so they're finally among people who understand them. And, you know, I think that here and there there's been influencers who wanted to capture gotcha content on us. Um, but we, we haven't experienced anything uh, that, that I would describe as, you know, very dangerous. I think one time we went to a Save the Children rally, which was one of the rebrandings of QAnon, and it was in Los Angeles, and the security for the event were Proud Boys. Now, because it's not an, a, an open carry state, they were armed with knives, but the Proud Boys are much scarier to me than anybody who follows QAnon. You know, I think uh, what they're taught, uh, the QAnon people, is to be meme warriors. They, they are fighting an information 
in information warfare. They are what they call digital soldiers, which was coined by Michael Flynn in one of his speeches. And so they perceive themselves that way. If you talk to them, they will tell you this is a nonviolent movement. They will go back home and they will go on YouTube and fantasize about the you know executions of their enemies, but they always imagine it through an external force. So the military is going to do this, you know, or Trump is going to take care of it. And I think there have been obviously outbreaks of violence among QAnon people. But they've often been people who were destabilized uh, mentally or socioeconomically, and they don't necessarily represent um, what the majority of QAnon people uh, would want to do. You know, uh, yeah, I would I would say that they are kind of in a unique position, even among a far right uh, gr- belief groups. You, know, you you'd alluded to this before, but um, so much of what we hear about QAnon is these grand hypotheses about how things are going to happen. And then inevitably they don't happen. You know, there was this idea that Trump's second term was going to be, you know, when all of all of everything encompassed within the storm happens. You mentioned how Guantanamo is going to be expanded so that they can fill it with Democrats. How do people react when there's no payoff? Like there's no there's no prophecy coming true. So why don't people just abandon it? If, if I went to a fortune teller who just kept getting everything wrong, I'd stop going, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of research. There's a there's a really great book uh, by a sociologist named Leon Festinger called When Prophecy Fails that explores that, this very question. Um, and what people learn is that when people believe a prophecy, they've invested a lot in it. And they really, really believe it. And that prophecy fails. They double down. You know, and this happens over and over and over again. Um, and so, I mean, you know, one classic example is, you know, there was a, a millenarian cult uh, which believed that Jesus would return in like 1849. Um, and it didn't happen. There was, the, there was a cult called the Millerites. And they turned into the Seventh-day Adventist church, which has millions of followers today. So, um, you know, just because just because, you know, there's a, a promise of a, you know, of a coming up, you know, uh, apocalypse, a promise of a coming golden age that is not fulfilled. That doesn't mean that the believers stop believing. They just believe that it's going to happen further in the future. It's just been delayed for some reason. This is just human nature, honestly. And like what Julian said earlier, you know, a lot of these folks have um, been isolated from family members, uh, from their friends for uh, believing in this. Um, and so in a lot of ways, socially and community wise, which I think we all we all strive to 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 have for ourselves in, in this life. Um, the only thing they have left are other QAnon believers. And it is it's difficult. It's difficult to go back to a family member that, you know, barred you from coming to, uh, you know, Thanksgiving Thanksgiving supper and saying, hey, you know, I was wrong. That was really stupid. You know, all the stuff that I was saying about JFK Jr. and the storm and all that stuff. I I, I was wrong. Um, and a lot of people don't realize that most most family members would say, hey, great. Awesome. Like, you know, I, let's talk about it. Let's you know, that's great. But I think that there is, um, you know, there is an internal mechanism that that keeps people from you know, like like Julian was saying, when you've you know, invested so much time into something. In in this case, you know, four years potentially. Um, yeah, it's a sunk cost fallacy. You it, know? Yeah, exa- exactly. And and what I will say is, there were a handful of people, probably not as many, uh, you know, not as many as we would have liked to see. Uh, but after January sixth, who looked, who who saw that, and 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 that was kind of it. Provided an off ramp. 
You know, January 6th, I think, was an off-ramp for a lot of QAnon believers because here were here were uh, people wearing the merch, uh, believing in the same things that they do, uh, you know, causing violence uh, to police officers, uh, uh, you know, attacking the cat, you know, attacking the Capitol, being very un unpatriot like um, and. I think there were a few that did that did exit and then and but the people who stayed on dug deeper and splintered off into different sects of of this QAnon movement and um, they simply blamed Antifa. They said these right. are Antifa. These are the feds actually doing a false flag. So like we mentioned earlier, there's always a mechanism to process, digest and continue on your journey. So we had, you know, we, we've just spoken here about why people continue to believe it once they've been exposed to it. But how is someone susceptible to believing in something like this? Because there are people listening to this right now who know someone who fell into that rabbit hole, who believe this stuff earnestly. And, you know, I know that for myself, for those people, like what we don't understand is how you get to the point where you can, I guess, fall for something like this. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of predictors of um, conspiracist belief, and one of them is a feeling of powerlessness. You know, if you feel like you really have no agency over your life, you are more likely to believe that, you know, the your the the results of your life are the consequence of like elite puppet masters controlling things behind the scenes. Uh, another one is is just isolation, the feeling like, you know, you don't un, being unable to, to connect with anyone in like a healthy way. You're more likely to find like community in these conspiracist communities. Um, but uh, those and I mean, and so the other one is just needing to feel like you're like a hero. I mean, this really connects to the, the powerlessness thing. People in the QAnon community really believe that they were part of a movement that would change the world in a revolutionary way like really profound changes. And um, so that, you know, that really motivated them to uh, to believe this nonsense. OK, so taking this stuff from the online into, you know, government, the stuff that I cover, you know, we've obviously got Republicans in office who believe in QAnon. Marjorie Taylor Greene subscribed to it. I'm certain that we'll have more after this next round of midterms in November. What does it say that these Republicans are subscribing to something so crazy? I think that the GOP has had to contend with a part of their base believing in these things and whether they've chosen to dog whistle to it or overtly support it is more of a question of tactics. You know, we've seen uh, someone like Joe Ray Perkins, for example, basically, you know, have their comms team tell them, you know, you need to knock it off with this extreme stuff. And for a little while, she she shows some self-control around it. And then she makes a video going, you know what? I'm sick of it. I'm sick of being censored. I'm going to just come out of the closet. You know what? I do believe in Q. What are you going to do about it? And so, you know, there is that that kind of interplay. But I think among the kind of GOP elite, they are uh, I think, as usual, with with extreme beliefs, with uh, with you know militias, with uh, far right um, belief systems, white supremacists, etc., they want to find that clever balance of we need the votes, and these people are galvanizing others, but the you know this looks bad. But I think that's also eroding. I think that more and more it doesn't really matter because some of these beliefs have been stripped of the label Q and have been kind of evaporated and and absorbed into the general uh, GOP belief system. So it's now very, very common to see satanic panic uh, spread among the GOP, which, you know, uh, there's been a big resurgence in that. The claim that your opponents are pedophiles or are grooming 
you know, children or trafficking, etc. I think um, a lot of these talking points have migrated into the mainstream to such a uh, to such an extent that they no longer need to say, hey, this, you know, this started with a Q drop or right. this is where I came across it. Do you, do you think like the, when I hear this stuff, the rationale that I give it, like the explanation that I give it when I hear these Republicans accusing Democrats of being pedophiles or being groomers or something is that it's just it actually fits into the Republican mindset pretty, pretty neatly in the sense that Republicans have long been leaning on these techniques to fear monger. And they've been warning about, you know, the entire white race being uh being replaced by immigrants obviously just leaning on this like emotional fear and so i think like that fits really neatly in because if you just accuse someone of being a pedophile obviously that's a major charge to lob at somebody else and so uh, it doesn't have to be true in the same way that you know obviously uh democrats aren't shipping in minority voters to replace white people in this country but it kind of does like fit back into that that mindset of just like raw emotional appeal appeal in terms of just scaring older white voters who make up their base do you think like that has any i guess i guess how do you reconcile that idea of just fear-mongering with you know their actual belief in any of this stuff i think that the fear-mongering definitely is a, an electoral strategy i think that for example the federalist society the Koch brothers and all of this these, this dark money system is there to replace judges, is there to kind of do the infrastructural uh, takeover that's necessary, uh, whether it's taking over universities or seating books or thinkers, uh, you know, kind of whole wings sometimes of, uh, of academic theory are seated by them. So the fear is really more of a galvanizing force that says go out and vote because they obviously are not happy with you know, constantly losing the popular vote and then winning through the Electoral College. So they do want uh, the semblance of legitimacy on the voting side of things. Of course, they would not stop uh, at, you know, at that. They don't they don't. That's just essentially aesthetic cover. And, um, you know, if you look at, for example, the Brooks Brothers riot that uh, that uh, Roger Stone was involved in, that that made sure that the count, the recount stopped uh, in Florida and made sure that Bush was seated, you know, these kind of dirty tactics that are on an institutional level or carried out by operators are possibly more crucial. But, you know, it never hurts to look like more people voted for you. And so voter suppression and all of these other tactics are definitely on the table. Brian, you you brought up something, uh, a a point, too, that I think is worth talking about. Um, Narrative wise, people who believe in QAnon they they like it better when the crime that you're accusing your opponent of can't be proven immediately. There there's a reason that that QAnon believers don't don't talk a lot about Jeffrey Epstein. They'll they'll use the case of Jeffrey Epstein to say, well, because this is true, then Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton are also doing the same. But but the problem is with real real crimes and real cases, eventually there will. be potentially be a trial. Eventually, somebody will get sentenced to a prison sentence and then it's it's done. You know, I, I think one of the, you know, the most fun things for people who believe in in the QAnon narrative is that it, it it's never ends. You know, it's like an MMO. You can keep playing and keep playing and the goal co- the goalposts can keep getting pushed 
pushed down the line. And this very small time arrest is actually meaningless because what it's really setting setting the world up for is is a massive arrest that's going to shock shock the world. You know, QAnon the people who believe in QAnon have this fantasy of all of their liberal friends coming to them hat in hand, you know, on their knees saying, I was so wrong. I, I was so wrong. Please forgive me. I see the light now. That is a huge element of the uh, of the of the the wish casting of QAnon is this idea that liberals will oh see the error of their ways once the major arrests start happening and and finally that family member that said you know no you can't talk about this at the dinner table or no you can't come to this family gathering goes I I was wrong and I am so sorry. Yeah, which is what makes it so so much harder for them to to do the same, right? To say, you know what, QAnon stuff hasn't come true. I was, so, I'm sorry. But a lot of the people who who do, you know, go through that process, they they latch onto uh, major movements uh, among the GOP now. So they have a kind of fallback that still allows them to continue, you know, carrying on the same political stance. Well, one other aspect I think of this that's important is to look at the religious aspect of things. The idea that the end times are here now, imminent that the Antichrist has appeared, you know, this is this has been happening forever. And millenarianism within uh, Protestantism in the United States and within far-right uh, and, and just broad right-wing movements has played an incredible role in galvanizing people to vote. And every four years, it's the same thing. Like, these are the end times, and you can save us. You can help, uh, you know, the, 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 the process of defeating the Antichrist or whatever uh, by, by voting, etc. And so I think that it's just around the corner. I mean, that's just... That's just another another year down for them, you know. It's yeah. it's it's always almost coming. There, there's also this like link to the Mike Pompeo evangelical wing of the Republican Party who thinks that the rapture is imminent, and so that all of their mm-hmm. support for Israel is predicated on that, on on the ultimate destruction of the people of Israel for, yes, for themselves. Yes. So yeah, it's that that whole hole right there. Yes, Israel's a wonderful launch, a wonderful landing pad. <laughs> Right, That's right. they're like we need to keep the landing pad in order because when Christ returns, you know he's going to be landing there. Yeah, yeah. the, the it, flames it, from the rockets might, uh, you know, uh, burn a, a couple million Jews, but yeah. uh, you know, but we'll take a couple good ones with us. You right. know, you'll you'll get to come. So let's finish off with this. You know, and and you'd alluded to to this point. I'm I'm going to make right here, but you've got this this whole world of conspiracy theories that until recently existed only like in these darkest corners of the internet. Obviously, we're now seeing a lot of this stuff manifest in real life, whether it's the political implications of it or these far-right militias or, or whatnot. Um, so it would seem like the belief in QAnon is is just a small part of a larger problem of, of online radicalization. So I guess the question is, has there been any effective means of deprogramming people who believed in QAnon? And could those solutions be replicated on a broader scale? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a huge question. I mean, the, that's really a mental health question. Not, none of us are mental health professionals. I would say that um, that the really the only effective means of helping someone climb out of the rabbit hole, it usually has to be done by family members, friends, someone who's really close to the individual. Um, so that makes it really hard to reproduce on a, on a big scale. But I mean, I would say that, you know, there's there's the best thing you can do for someone is, you know, uh, invite them back, know that they won't be 
mocked or judged if they, you know, if they have a healthier media diet, if they uh, approach reality in a health, healthier way. So, I mean, that's, that's a really tough question. There are lots of people who are working that problem. I just don't think we're quite, we as podcasters are quite, um, quite uh, equipped to solve it. Well, I think, you know, I think your answer right there is, is pretty spot on. I, I would ask you guys, uh, what's the best way, obviously, to, to hear more from you? You can search for QAnon Anonymous uh, on any podcast platform. And you can also, if you need links to listen or, or figure out uh, how to do that, you can go to QAnonAnonymous.com. Awesome. Jake, Julian, and Travis, thank you guys so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And uh, hang in there. I know it's a, I know it's a rough, it's a, it's a weird, uh, it's a weird thing that you guys do every day. So we appreciate, uh, we appreciate the insight. Great. Thank you so Our much. Pleasure. Thanks a lot, Brian. Now we've got the president of NextGen, the nation's largest youth vote mobilization organization, Christina Sinsun Ramirez. Christina, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I'm really glad we're able to talk uh, because, you know, what you're focused on right now is ground zero. Young voters are what's going to either make or break us on the left as we head into November. So first, what does NextGen do specifically? Like, What's your strategy to mobilize young voters? Yeah, so we've been around about 10 years and we started out actually to organize that if we're going to address the climate crisis that we had to harness the power of young people. That was originally our first mission. And so we have figured out Last election, we helped get out one in nine of the young people that turned out. We've registered 1.4 million people. We organize anywhere and everywhere young people are. So this election, we're in eight states targeting 9.6 million likely progressive voters. That means we're on 186 college and community college campuses. We're out in the community. And then we're organizing online. We have 25,000 volunteers that put in millions of dollars of sweat equity elected each election to send tens of millions of calls, texts, and then also organize on video games and dating apps. Um, we say there's nothing sexier than talking about democracy. Um, and we, uh, you know, cause you can organize on dating apps by search by age, political persuasion and geography. So it's a great organizing tool. So, you know, you'd mentioned one in nine voters, and I guess that that points to the broader problem uh, in terms of reaching young people is like, if they were an older demographic, that those kind of numbers, that kind of percentage would be would be considered unsuccessful. So what are we seeing like in terms of in terms of these the percentage of participation among young people? And I guess what is considered a success now and, and what should we be aiming for? So I'm going to I was listening to a different podcast you had where you said you said I consider myself a youngish person. That's right. <laughs> are, you, are you a what? I don't know what generation I'm going to guess millennial. Millennial. Yes. <laughs> So am I. So, you know, since 2004, which was an election I voted in as a young person, um, we one progressives have been winning the youth vote and the youth vote share has been increasing. So the last two elections saw historical record turnout of young people. But young people, we are now the largest generational voting bloc if you count millennials plus Gen Z. And it's the most consistently progressive voting bloc. So Republicans and Democrats used to pretty evenly split the demo, the youth vote, and now it is just overwhelmingly progressive. Um, and so the what we have to do, which is a cyclical problem, is a lot of Democrats have said young people don't vote, so they don't put them in their universe of who they go and talk to. And then young people will say, I didn't vote because I didn't even know there was election. And I didn't know who to vote for. Right. And round and round we go. And so part of our job at NextGen is getting Democratic candidates to wake up and understand that they have to invest and talk to the youth vote. Because I promise you, anyone in these competitive races, if they don't win 60%, especially in these Senate races of the youth vote, they're going to lose. 
So prior to Roe, there were some worrying signs from young people. I believe, you know, Biden got about 60 percent of the youth vote uh, in this past election. And, and by July, his approval rating was around 37 percent. And I presume that was owed largely to the fact that Democrats were pretty unable to pass any major legislation up to that point. You know, the whole ineffectiveness of the party. But since then, Democrats have passed CHIPS, PACT, gun legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act. We also have, you know, infrastructure. We've recovered all the pandemic jobs that were lost. Are you seeing any recovery right now among young people? And more broadly, are they salvageable or are they mostly just set in their opinions? I mean, what I like to remind people, because people always point to Biden's low approval numbers with young people, is that Biden was never the youth vote candidate in 2020. That was Bernie Sanders. And then you still had record breaking turnout for young people for Biden. Um, But Roe, we've seen a big increase in um, motivation to vote. So young people are on track to vote at the same numbers they voted in 2018 right now. Previous to Roe, there was a lot more excitement from young Republicans than young Democrats and young progressives. And that started to shift. So people feel like my rights are being taken away. And and now we actually can point to something that Democrats have done because it's not enough. Young people have been coming out and voting for Democrats. But what's important to know is they are voting for progressive policy change, not for the party. And so um, it's really, really critical that we're able to say the Inflation Reduction Act, which is the biggest historical investment ever to tackle the climate crisis, which we all have to inherit and live with, has actually passed. And it's because of your vote and your power. And you had Chuck Schumer and many senators saying thank you to young people for pushing us to actually do this. Okay, so on that exact point about uh, Biden's approval rating and whatnot, when we when we point to this stuff, it's like, okay, Biden might not be popular because he wasn't getting enough done. But that doesn't necessarily mean that young people are going to defer to Republicans whose agenda they overwhelmingly disagree with. So are we drawing too much of a conclusion from Biden's popularity numbers among young people who might still recognize that the alternative is a Republican Party that doesn't care about climate change and that thinks you shouldn't be able to get an abortion? Yeah, I think that what Roe showed, especially for a lot of folks, was this is an extreme minority, right? People understood that a lot of people came out and voted against Trump, right? It was very clear that fascism versus democracy was on the line. And with taking a right, such a fundamental right about what we can decide for our own bodies, our own health, our own futures, that has accelerated people's understanding that again in 2022, that fascism is up on up for election and that there is an extreme right wing minority that doesn't even really believe in democracy at this point that's trying to take control of our country. And their vision is a a future where women don't get to decide what happens with their bodies. Gay marriage no longer exists. We're not going to tackle climate change and we're going to build an economy that's just for the ultra, ultra wealthy. What would be most effective right now that the White House or Democrats could be doing to boost youth turnout? I mean, one of the other issues we have to look at is student debt. Um, You know, there is a lot of young folks and folks that are even older that are carrying the burden of student debt. Um, I think there are the other things that we have to do that we didn't get in this piece of legislation, which the Inflation Reduction Act failed to do, was really core components to deal with people's economic livelihoods, right? I think people sometimes don't understand how deep and broad the economic pain is for young people. Young adults are the first generation in American history to be worse off than their parents. So many people I know feel like they can never afford to buy a house, that they instead have a mortgage on their mind. Um, They feel like they can't have kids, or if they have kids, they feel like they can't afford to have them. And so we need to make sure that we're looking at things again and pushing 
on universal pre-K, um, on paid parental leave. These are things that really transform people's lives that are working class and middle class young people. If you could have any wish granted in terms of voter mobilization, what would it be? Like Ariana Grande doing 10 TikToks in a row, telling every single one of her followers to vote. Oh, I was like, get money out of politics. That was, <laughs> that's <laughs> I mean, my like, so, something that could something that could that's feasible, but no matter how how big it is, but something that's feasible that could that could drive uh, uh, youth voter turnout. I mean, what I think about is how many young people are organized online, right? Like we organize with a lot of influencers, but Megan the Stallion, if you are listening, Lizzo or Bad Bunny, we would love to do some events with you because uh, you are uh, cultural leaders for millions and millions of young people and working with them to use their platforms. And Megan Stallion has done so much already just talking about hot girls are ready to, to mobilize, right? And that being as angry and pissed off seeing what's happening in her home state, which is my home state of Texas. But I mean, like, you know, some of that was was facetious, but at the same time, like, would getting these huge stars or like people that have major audiences among young people, like would getting them talking directly to their audiences, would that be the number one driver? Would that be a major driver of like youth voter turnout that we hadn't seen before? Is that is that like, is that what these mega influencers, mega celebrities and singers and, and actors would, is that what would be most helpful? I think that we need to do that, but then also everyone needs to realize we're all influencers and that the way we get people out to vote is actually saying I'm voting and here's why I'm voting and who's, here's who I'm voting for. I ran an organization in Texas that mobilized young Latino voters. And one of the things that I love that the young people we worked with is they started making their own, um, uh, 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 lists of who they were voting for and sharing that with their peers. And that helps so many people because so many people don't show up because they only know who the president is. They don't know who their senator or governor or congressional rep is. And so someone else that they trust, that's another young individual saying, this is my voter guide. Here's who I'm voting for. Like, that's a realizing that we all influence our friends, our family, and using our own social media platforms to share that is a huge tool we have. That's a great point. Um, you had mentioned the number one in nine at the beginning of this interview. What what numbers are you um, striving for this go around? I mean, we are working really hard right now across the states that we're in with our field and our organizing and distributed teams. Our goal is we're trying to talk to 9.6 million likely progressives in those states. And my go our goal is to turn out at least 2.3 million of them, which is pretty on par with 2018 turnout. We know that this election is not just about 2022, it is also about 2024, and that especially in states where secretaries of state races or governor's races are up, that Republicans are looking at about how they can install people in those positions that would refuse to certify an election if it was not in the favor of their candidate. And so that's why it's so critical in these critical states of like Pennsylvania, Arizona, Mich Michigan, and Wisconsin, that young people realize this is also about the presidential race, and we're trying to make that clear to them. Right. And for those same people who know that they're going to go out in 2024 and vote anyway in those presidential elections, voting right now is going to be what it takes to like validate that next vote that you're going to have. So if you don't want your own vote to be undermined, then, then, this, yeah. uh, then this election coming up in November is going to be just as important as that next election that you're going to come out and vote, and vote in anyway. Um, with that said, Christina, how can we uh, how can we best help? One, you obviously, Brian, thanks for sharing our work and talking about the power of young people, but also people can volunteer from anywhere. You're in the great state of California. There are many great local races. But if you also want to go, we have to protect the House and the Senate and you want to be involved in some key Senate races or in Mich Michigan and Wisconsin, go to our website 
website and join our volunteer team. Also go to our website and check your registration if you're a young person listening and post it on social media and ask and encourage other people to check their registration and make sure they're registered. Um, or if they're not, they can get registered online um, in states that allow it. So please everyone make sure and talk to three friends about midterms. Um, never talk down to people. Uh, people are busy with their lives. It's about letting them know the power they have in a midterm and and who they should vote for and why. I love that so much. That that three-person thing has been my mantra forever. Just find three people in your circle. Uh, Christina, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Brian. Thanks again to Christina. That's it for this episode. Talk to you next week. You've been listening to No Lie with Brian Tyler Cohen, produced by Sam Graber, music by Wellesley, interviews captured and edited for YouTube and Facebook by Nicholas Nicotera, and recorded in Los Angeles, California. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your preferred podcast app. Feel free to leave a five-star rating and a review, and check out briantylercohen.com for links to all of my other channels. Thank you.